Okay, we have one Super Bowl entrant in so far. The Broncos are going. Sorry if you were DVRing that game. I just re realized that. I think I just ruined someone's uh, evening. Uh, do we know the score of the other game? Oh, it starts later. Okay, okay, okay. I remember having a four-year-old daughter who has, uh, who's um, a little bit on the strong-willed side, just had to see if she was present uh, tonight. Uh, she, she had a way of just having kind of her own opinion and just kind of being a little, uh, well, whatever, you get it. Um, and she was trying, um, fussing with uh, a, a medicine bottle, like, and uh, mommy was unpacking groceries, and it was like one of those, you know, like, a, I don't know, like an Excedrin bottle, but it had the child-proof cap on. And she's working at it, working at it, and, you know, it's this big white knob of a, and she, she couldn't get it open. And Laurel tries to explain to her, well, sweetie, th this is a child-proof cap, to which she's not going to be daunted. Like, oh, yeah? And she's just working the cap like, like it's her business, till finally, in this astounded and frustrated voice, but how does it know that I'm a kid? It doesn't. You just are. And you're supposed to need the help. And I can't think of a better picture because sometimes we go through our lives, we kind of shake our fist at life, we shake our fist at God and saying, I, I can't do this. And he's like, I know, you're supposed to need help. But most of us prefer to live on a diet of self-sufficiency. Most of us would rather be on the giving end of favors and help than on the humiliating receiving end of people's generosity. Maybe that's our control issue. I don't know. But I know I have a hard time. Um, I'll give you an example. This, uh, let's see, it was... Two weeks ago, a friend of mine was moving. Uh, he was moving out of his office, moving out of a house, and needing to prepare another house, but had to move into a rental for a month, whatever. Can I borrow your truck? I thought it would be for a day. It became eight days. And each day, he'd text me and say, can I keep your truck? And I was just so glad to say, yeah, I don't need it. In fact, he had an extra car, so we just traded. So it wasn't like I was out of car. Uh, our life wasn't compromised at all. I was just happy to let him use my truck. Well, um, eight days later, um, our other car breaks down. And so I had to text him back and say, hey, kind of need to get my truck back, but could I also keep yours? <laughs> and um, so th that, was, that was like on Tuesday. And so now it's Sunday. And now I'm feeling like I'm putting him out because he kind of needs his car back, right? Because they have more drivers uh, than cars right now. And I liked being on the other end of that giving um, equation then now on the I'm so sorry I'll get I know I know I think we'll I think we'll be able to pick ours up tonight, tonight yeah I think so we don't like that equation have you guys ever found yourself in a place to stumble into that moment where you're like I didn't know what I didn't know uh, let's just what happens when you're in that place um, just by show of hands I'm curious if you kind of realize what you don't know um, are you one to stop and read the instructions? Anyone? Anyone? Okay. So we have some manual readers. Um, 
not to be confused with remedial readers, because those things, uh, anyway. Uh, how many of you would stop and maybe call or ask someone for help? Are you that person? If you, in the face of confusion, would you stop and ask someone for help? How many of you would keep trudging ahead and try and figure it out with not asking for help or not stopping to look? Okay. Yeah. Well, that's a pretty good split there. I think we've all been into that situation where we've looked at someone else and they come in and they didn't know what they didn't know. Uh, can you, I don't know if you can think of a picture of that. Maybe it's a new hire at work. Maybe it's a, um, a college grad. Maybe it's your kid. <laughs> they don't even know the questions to be asking, but they, they, they sure don't lack for confidence. And, and th they sure don't lack for enthusiasm, but they don't really know what they don't know. And what I realize, if that's true of one, that's also probably true of me. And if that's true of us, the real question is, is where do we go or to whom do we go when we actually need help? Where do you go? when your marriage feels like it's falling off the rails? Where do you go when your faith feels perpetually dry, when you feel like your prayers hit the ceiling and bounce back? Do you have someone, somewhere, to turn to? That's really important, I think. So let me just review. Um, wanted to start a series uh, as by way of launch as kind of a vision series, kind of, a, kind of the DNA of who I want us to be. And the DNA of this uh, is centered around these things I simply call rhythms. And the rhythms were my idea of having a church that would be more than just a gathering around a worship service or a gathering around a living room. I wanted a way for people to enter into a process, the process by which I would like to think of as your spiritual formation. Now, I don't think spiritual formation is something you can do in isolation. I think you need a community. We need people who have walked further along, and we need people who are just beginning the journey. We need people who are asking brand new questions, and we have people who are walking along into uncharted territory. I think that's the beauty of what it means to be a part of a faith community. Last week, I introduced something um, <clears throat> when, when we used a verse that came out of Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verses 8 and 10, and it says, you have been saved by grace. Uh, and the idea of grace is simply that it's a gift. It comes from the word that, uh, charis or charisma, someone who's got it. They didn't, they didn't really develop it. They didn't earn it. They didn't buy it. They just got it. It's the it factor, right? It's you have been saved by grace. It's all a gift to do good works. And so last week we talked a lot about the good works, what was implied by Paul's writing to Ephesus about these, these idea of good works. The, the, the maybe the most literal translation we can get is commands. Now, commands is a very loaded thing because that feels heavy, especially when you go back to the Old Testament of which they were preaching from, and there were 613 commands. Can I just back up and say, God on Mount Sinai gave Moses 10 commands, but then uh, people started extrapolating. People started inferring things. People wanted to be more and more devout, and then they interpreted from 10 commands, got 613 commands. Did you grow up in a legalistic church? 
did you grow up with hoops to jump through? Did you grow up with this idea of I can't ever feel like I measure up? 10 to 613. What you would get is religious leaders, and they would have what they, they come known as their interpretation of the law. And the law as, uh, was, was their kind of their focus. It's maybe the earliest development of denominations. They would have some points that they would emphasize more than others. And their interpretation would call, be called their yoke. And Jesus comes along and he says, Come, follow me. My yoke is useful. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. So for all the ones who were extrapolating what you couldn't couldn't do on Sabbath or the kind of work you shouldn't or the kinds of animals you shouldn't shouldn't touch and all of this, Jesus comes and he just kind of evens the playing field and he just said, here, love the Lord your God, heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus had this kind of revolutionary way of looking at Torah, looking at the law and the commands and what it meant. And the law was always intended to help us live in harmony with God and harmony with one another and harmony with the environment, this good earth that he's entrusted us with. So that was the picture and where we started. So what I want to do over the next few moments tonight is take a little bit and over the next few weeks is talk about our different rhythms. One of the rhythms, and, and I, I don't know how much you've looked on the website or know, um, uh, we have hospitality and generosity and gratitude and compassion and community renewal and apprenticing. Now, my contention is, is I believe in a couple of things. If we were to practice each of these, it would form Christ in me. I believe that it could be transformational. But I also believe that if we were to practice these as a community, Austin would be better for it, that the kingdom of light would shine into dark places, that the kingdom of God would be in the margins more, simply because the people of God took it upon themselves to have a faith practice that was bigger than church attendance. And so I believe in, in, in these rhythms being a part of our DNA, because in the coming age. Of, of this emerging culture, the thing that I feel like is so critical is that we, we learn to be the church whether we're gathered or apart. Because you know tomorrow morning's coming, and that's where the real battles start. That's where your t faith gets tested the most. And so what is it that keeps you aligned with the things that you hold most near and dear? And I'm simply suggesting here's seven rhythms, whether we're together as a small group, as a worship gathering, or if you're just on your way up to Round Rock on a, on a rough commute, or if you're on your way into cubicle world in a kind of a cutthroat corporate environment. I'm just saying, here's some rhythms that we can practice. Tonight, I want to talk about one that I call apprenticing. I think the biblical language for this is simply discipleship. And so I want to paint a picture of what it was like um, for kids to be discipled, for people to be raised in a community of faith. And then I want to talk about what I think the vision is for Mission Hills Church. It's fascinating when you begin to unpack what Jewish culture was like because they understood Torah. They wanted their kids to understand. So just like we would enroll our kids like in five years old and they would get in kindergarten and they would learn their alphabet and they would learn sort of their writing techniques and grammar and all of this stuff and graham crackers and milk and they'd know how to have a recess and how to play. 
they would enroll them in something called Bet Sefer. Bet Sefer was for five and six year olds to begin the process of memorizing the Torah. Now the Torah, again, is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Sometimes it's referred to as the Pentateuch. It is the first five books of what we have as the Old Testament. And they would begin a course of study up until the age of 12, boys and girls. Now, girls focus, girls were often used as the worship leaders within the synagogue. And so the girls focus both on Deuteronomy and, and Leviticus, but then they focused on the Psalms a lot because that was so much so integral and the Proverbs because that was part of the worship. Boys would begin this memorization process until they were about 12 years old. 12 years old, there was kind of a test. They would begin these memorization drills, and they would kind of a back and forth. Do you remember when Jesus came into, uh, well, you, you remember reading about it. Jesus came into town for Passover into Jerusalem, and his parents left him behind, and then they're like, oh my gosh, I thought it was with you. He had like the parent moment that all parents have had. It's like, oh no, I thought it was with you. And they go back into Jerusalem, and he was holding court, he was 12. What was he doing? They were amazed at his teaching. And so what they would learn is they would study the Torah, the law, um, backwards and forwards. But to show mastery of it, they would show conceptual mastery. It wasn't just could you take a good test and graduate and go on to whatever grade. It was, it would be similar to this. This is how I like to, to um, share it. It would be instead of saying, they would ask a question but respond with a question. So it would be like, well, what is six plus six? And he would say, well, um, what is 24 minus 12? What is uh, two times six? And what's the square root of, tw of 144? And it says they were amazed at this 12-year-old kid because he had such mastery over his understanding of the Torah. That's what was happening. Because sometimes I read scripture and I go, what's the big deal? What's wrong with these parents for forgetting their kid? Well, 13 was kind of the age that uh, the religious or the spiritual age, you became a spiritual adult. That's why to this day, the Hebrew culture or the Jews would have um, bat and bar mitzvahs. It's a recognition of a coming of age. But for the short portion, a very small portion of a group of people, group of kids that were kind of the upper crust. They were sort of the honor roll students. They might go on to another school called Beth Midrash. Beth Midrash would begin more memorization drills, and then they would add to it the law and the prophets. Full mastery, full memorization. The other kids would go, and probably girls would start getting ready to be married, and the boys would learn the family trade. This was normative. By the time they were 15, there might be a few Ivy Leaguers, a few elite kids who showed complete mastery that they would identify with a famous rabbi, and he would follow him. And what they would do is they would approach a rabbi that they liked, that was renowned, that they wanted to follow, and they would ask the question, can I follow you? Which was in essence saying, do I have what it takes to be like you? Because the goal, the burning desire was to become like the master rabbi. Jesus comes along.
and he does something revolutionary. Jesus comes along and do, does something completely different. Jesus comes along and he says, come follow me. So from day one, they already had the belief of the master rabbi. There wasn't this, I have to earn your respect. I have to earn your trust. From day one, he starts with complete and utter acceptance. Come, follow me. Most rabbis were going to teach in a local village and work a trade also. But they were highly esteemed. The term rabbi was something that wasn't necessarily a degree or an office. It was simply a term of respect and honor given on behalf of the community. Most rabbis would work in a community, a village, and they would teach so that everyone could understand the law and the prophets. They were master storytellers, and they could go through all the memorization drills. But they were expected to teach what was already established as part of the common understanding and interpretation. There was another group of rabbis that would, they were tremendous, highly gifted in their storytelling, in their interpretation, and they had an ability to interpret scripture. These ones were in a very elite category. Do you remember at 30, Jesus begins? Because at 30, you could begin to be your own rabbi. Jesus shows up. Matthew chapter 7, and he starts with a new interpretation of how to live the way of Torah. What's the goal of Torah? To live in harmony with God, to live in harmony with each other. He's wanting to help us align our lives. Jesus comes along, and after going through the Beatitudes, starts to teach them in a way they hadn't heard. Do you remember what he said? You've heard it said, but I say unto you. What? He's doing a new interpretation. Jesus is an elite kind of rabbinical teacher with kind of the, the, the grand master of it all. Like, and so Jesus introduces this new kind of ethic, this new kind of teaching. And again, it's the desire of every disciple to not just follow as a student, because students, what do you want to do? Just give me the information so I can take the test and pass. No. The goal of every disciple was to become like the master rabbi. So they wouldn't want to miss a beat. They didn't want to miss anything. So they began to travel and study day and night. They watched the way they ate. They watched the way they slept. They mimicked their posture. They didn't want to be apart for fear of a teachable moment. It was devotion to the master rabbi because you wanted to be like him. That's why in Luke 6.40 says, a student, when fully trained, won't be better than the teacher, but will become like him. All of a sudden, when you start understanding a little bit of the Jewish orientation, you start understanding the whole of what Jesus was doing and what Jesus was teaching and why he was getting some of the strong reactions that he got along the way. Now, time out for a sec. Let me just ask this question. For all of your church attendance, for all of your volunteering, for all of your serving, for all of your giving, for all of your prayer, for all of your Bible study, what is your goal? If you are like me, I just oftentimes want God to fix things. 
to make them better. And this is why I have oftentimes a very frustrated spiritual life because we come to God almost like a lucky rabbit's foot. And if we rub it in the right edges and we find the right scripture, it might make our day go a little better. But the goal of every Talmudim, which is what a disciple is, a follower, is to become like the master. Now, as I go through all of this stuff, I realized very quickly, my Sunday school did not do that. I don't know what yours was like. For us, it was a series of um, gold star stickers and candy bribery to not forget our Bibles. And if you were like me, I had a special hiding place so that I wouldn't forget it because, God forbid, I read it during the week. But I didn't want to forget my Bible lest I forget not get my reward in children's church and Sunday school growing up. It was bare minimum growing up. I didn't have this experience. But here's what I would say. I think so much of what we've lost in the sake of church growth for wanting to attract the masses is that we have, we have taken the rigor out of our faith and we've settled for something that feels mostly spoon-fed because we've wanted to make the Christian experience as accessible and as convenient as possible, except the Christian experience, if we follow the life of Christ, ends at a cross. But that's not the final word either. It actually has an addendum that ends with an open tomb. I just think we want new life without actually going through any kind of death to self. And so there is, in our lives, a pruning that we're confronted with. In fact, Lent is coming up, and I don't like to just stumble across Easter Sunday, which I think is everyone's promise to experience new life. I want to prepare, and I'd like us to prepare as a community. I'm, I've written a 40-day Lent guide so we can have daily practices just to center ourselves in preparation to experience new life. It's the idea that if we could somehow die to ourselves, I think we might be a little closer to new life in, in particular ways. So, again, uh, <coughs> my Sunday school didn't, didn't teach it this way. I like to say it this way, and this is how I've kind of crafted the rhythm of apprenticing. We see the need for wisdom and choose to seek it from those who've traveled further in faith, in family, in marriage, and in the marketplace. However, we see our own experiences as a sacred trust, enabling us to pay it forward with others. We see the value of invitation, of challenge, of potential, and the chance to be known all as a part of a transformational process. Why is apprenticing, why is discipleship so very important? And I would say it this way, discipleship is never a program. And the, the minute someone says, oh, we're a part of a discipleship program is the minute you know you're a part of something that isn't. It, it's not bad, but if it's just a series of books to go through and blanks to fill out, you'll, you'll be disappointed. I promise you. Um, it can't just be a program. It has to be a way of life. It has to be a reorientation. And so what I'm trying to do is create a community that creates a new orientation to how we do church. Because Jesus never said, go and plant churches. Jesus said, go and make disciples. So my question is, is if the way we're doing church actually producing disciples, those whom know how to give their faith to another? 
right? We want to become self-feeders as much as we want to become investors in others. I think that's the goal of the Christian life. I think that's the marks of maturity. My vision is to create a community of disciples who know how to give away their faith. And to me, and, and let's just be honest, when we start talking about give away your faith, I think the most daunting, scariest, don't make me do this is, all right, y'all, we're going to go share our faith. And someone pulls out like a stack of tracks and you're like, I think I'm coming down with something because I'm not going to go do that. And, and if you've ever been assaulted with someone with a track or someone wanting to have some spiritual survey or conversation with you, you know that on both sides of that, it's terribly awkward. If someone comes knocking at your door to want to proselytize you for spiritual reasons, whatever. That's not what I'm talking about. However, I understand what 1 Peter 3 says is that it says always be able to give a reason for the hope you have in Christ Jesus, but do this with gentleness and respect. Could you articulate a response about the difference Christ has made or is making in your life? That's not a final exam question, but it is sort of a convicting, I don't know if I could. The best I can do is just bring someone to church with me or go introduce them to that guy because he seems to be able to articulate better things, right, or things better than I. I mean, that's, that's how it feels. Here's, here's my belief. If we get better at practicing our faith in really tangible ways, we'll get better at sharing our faith. So when you practice things like generosity, when you practice things like hospitality to someone who can't repay the favor, when you practice things like having margins because we believe in renewal and sustainable living, when you practice these things, it starts to make a difference and people start to ask you questions. Why did you give to that person? Why is it when you have a free evening that you would leave it blank? Why is it that you would choose to say no to this, but yes to this? Why is it that you would invite people into your house? It was so fun. This last year, many of you were part of living room gatherings in our home. We were hosting a lot this last year, and we were doing a process of, of financing with this person that we'd never met face-to-face. Um, -face. But every time he seemed to call, and, and we, it was kind of a friend of a friend meeting, and he was doing our loan stuff. And um, he finally asked us, after going through the process for a few months, I, I, just, I just need to ask, why? You guys have a lot of company. Why, are you, why do you keep hosting people so much? <laughs> well, it's funny you should mention it. One of the things we believe is that hospitality is attached to our faith. And we just think that what we have is a gift from God. And so we want to steward it as best we're able. And we didn't want to just raise church brats. We wanted to raise kids who understood that everything's a gift from God. And so we want to share it as best we can with others. So we have a lot of dinner parties. It was funny, when I first moved into my neighborhood, we were having similar things. This was 10 years ago. And you know how it's funny, once you get to know the neighbors and they, they start kind of, oh, this is what we thought of you, or this is what we weren't sure. And, and once a month, we would have this lunch with like 75 to 90 people because uh, they're mostly young adults and everyone had their own car. And you know, it would line our street, which is a dead-end street. So, I mean, 
there was no secret that the Sundays were having to write. And I remember having one neighbor finally say, oh, we just thought you were planting a church. <laughs> that was maybe prophetic, thinking back now. I don't know. But uh, it, it was funny. It opens all kinds of conversation points. See, I think when you start practicing faith in really tangible ways, you have a, you have a unique ability to disciple your kids. You have a unique, unique ability to stay spiritually connected with a spouse. You have a unique ability to be able to tell others the difference Christ is making or how you're trying to not be a hypocrite, but practice what you believe is true about who God is. That's all we're trying to do. People go, rhythms, that sounds kind of weird. I know, it does. But language is important, and I think what's been tried has kind of run its course within, um, you know, there's lots of great worship gatherings around Austin and in our country. I just wanted a gathering um, and a community that we could be about living on mission together. I shared before, um, and I shared it at a tribe last week down in Rollingwood, I said, it was a quote, and, it, and he said, if you start by trying to build a community, you rarely get mission. But if you start trying to build mission, you always get the community. So what if we didn't just gather because we like the same style of worship, or because we've just lived simply in the same neighborhood, or we were all in the same life stage? What if we gathered? What if we gathered? Because we agreed together that we could be the church, whether we're living up in Georgetown or down off of Manshack or out in Lakeway or Northwest Hills, that we could be the church, whether we're gathered or whether we're scattered throughout the week. See, that felt like a faith that not only could transform a life, it, found, it feels like a faith that could be given away. Let me just kind of wrap up with a couple of things here. See, um, I believe that if you're willing to stick around with this thing called Mission Hills long enough and you involve yourself, you'll learn a practice and you'll learn how to follow Christ, but you'll also learn how to impact others. Um, and my hope is that um, you could find someone maybe further along, but even if you can't, even if, if that doesn't happen, you at least find a way to live out your faith in really tangible ways. I've, done f I've been a family pastor um, I've been a youth pastor. I've been an adult education pastor. Um, most families choose a church because they have a really good children's program or a really good youth program. And don't get me wrong, I think that's great. We're working on a really good one that I'm excited about. Um, but they choose it because most parents feel inadequate as spiritual leaders. I don't know how to have a spiritual conversation with my kid. You Could you do it? <laughs> And so we go to these places because we, we need help. And I, I, I was a youth pastor for 10 years, and that was the cry of most parents. All I'm simply suggesting is I want to put some tools in your toolbox, develop a relationship, and make this church feel like an extended family living on mission together. Now, most of us would say, I would love to find a mentor. Um, to which I'd say, some of you might. But I would also argue that most all of you have something within you to give away right now. There's always more to learn. There's always more to grow, right? But let me just suggest to you that you already have something to be investing. So I don't like to think about our kids as a children's department. 
I, I, don't, I don't think about that as something like a silo. That's why I want them in worship. That's why I don't mind if it gets a little loud in here because we're apprenticing kids. Now, I think discipleship or apprenticing happens two ways. I think it happens formally and intentionally with deliberate. I also think it happens informally and organically. Let me talk about those two things real quick. There's, there's a couple of verses. When we talk about kind of organic and, and, and sort of, uh, can you go to the next slide, bud? Um, yeah, um, there's a verse out of Hebrews that says, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Do you have people that you can look to and try and imitate their faith? I think what we need to give kids of any age, but peers is is an imitation of what it looks like to follow Jesus. So we want to create environments, whether they're based in our living rooms or based at Ascension Lutheran Church, a place for people to gather and to be exposed what it looks like to pray in humility, to give generously, to, to worship wholeheartedly, to sit and be a part of a worship experience. In fact, studies are showing that the way kids inherit the faith of their parents the most is when they worship together. So that's part of the strategy in having kids a part of this time together. Now, um, so, so that, that can happen and, and, and it does and that's part of why we've set up the time, but if we can create an environment for practice as a community, I think what it does is it allows us to be uncomfortable together. As a youth pastor, I used to take kids off to have this mountaintop experience in youth group and then oftentimes they'd come home to a living hell. And it would be better to take the whole family and have the same experience. Similarly, if you just try and live out your faith on your own, independently, in isolation, you will run out of gas. But if we do these experiments of faith, if we do a 30-day Lent or a 40-day Lent calendar together, if we live out a rhythm of generosity and do this group-wide experiment, and it just feels a little uncomfortable, I'd rather be uncomfortable with you than uncomfortable on my own. So that's part of the idea of sometimes this apprenticing or this discipleship will happen very organically. It'll, it'll happen more informally. We wanna just expose the kids to a kind of environment of practice. In fact, I coined a phrase that I just like to use, practice is the new deep. I've, I've been in church for 20 years as a pastor, and the hardest thing for me to ever hear is someone go, well, we just want to go, we're just looking for something a little deeper, pastor. Really? Really? Do you want to talk about the diet that I'm trying to serve here? And, and I'll go, how's this? Love your neighbor as yourself. Start there. How's that working for you? <laughs> I'm just playing. But what if, what if we just had a whole experiment around, let's see how well we can love our neighbors. Practice is the new deep. Um, the other way it comes is what I would say is more deliberate and formal. Uh, and, um, and this would come from um, uh, 2 Timothy 2.2, as one theologian said this week. Um, uh, thank you for those of you who uh, watched uh, the theologian from Liberty. Uh, no, I'm not I'm just Second Timothy 2.2 would say this, the things which you have heard me uh, heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these things to faithful men who will also be able to teach others. Have you guys ever heard the story of, of um, Dawson? Uh, what's it? Dawson? What is it? Dawson Trotman. Thank you. Thank you. He was a group called the Navigators. Dawson Trotman learned 
some basic Bible study principles. He learned some basic techniques about prayer and methods, and he got really excited, and he had a group of teenage boys that he taught in a Sunday school class because he wanted to share these things, and he got kind of practice, but he also was part of the Navy. And he found this guy in the Navy, Lee Stevens, and he began to do this work, and they spent time every week together, and he would teach them. They would do scripture memorization, and they would study the word. They would pray together, and they would talk about what it meant to not just learn the information, what it looked like to actually follow the rabbi, Jesus. And so he goes through this whole process, and then kind of at the end of the year, Leeks comes to him and he says, Dawson, that was great, and I've got this friend. you got to do it for him. And he looks at him, and he goes, I can't. He's like, what do you mean? That was awesome. Look how close we got. Look how far we've grown. He says, it's your turn. You do it. And here's what he said. He said, if I did all of this for you and spent all this time and taught you all of these things and you couldn't do it for your friend, then I failed. Friends, for you and I who have grown up in the church a whole lot in a steady diet of Bible stories and verses and scripture memory, if we don't know how to share that, then it's almost been squandered. What he ended up doing was taking his friend and doing it with him. Dawson went and found someone else. Over the next few years, and this was on the USS West Virginia, the whole ship, they began a a meeting of 125 guys that were just going through this one-on-one discipleship, meeting every week, studying scripture, learning how to pray, doing all this stuff that was super intense. Well, these men, like you do in the Navy, got shipped around the world at a thousand different bases and, and, and um, different, um, on board different ships. Till finally, the government issued an FBI investigation And here's what their justification was. Because sailors aren't acting like sailors. (laughs) They're used to ports of call being a little rough. They're used to breaking up bar fights and going into brothels. And and, and Sailors quit acting like sailors because their lives were being changed by a living faith. If I could say one thing about the rhythms, all I'm trying to instill in us is a living faith. A way to be intentional, a way to be focused, a way to pass it along. It took them the better part of six months following these suspects, story after story, suspect after suspect. Six months later, it finally leads back to Dawson Trotman. He created a whole movement simply by being intentional and by being formal and deliberate and saying, let's walk through this together. See, friends, there's going to be chances for some of you to jump in and help with the kids, and we're just going to create the right environment. Some of you are going to be able to come alongside some of our kids and do that work, and we actually need some more help in there just so the same moms don't have to be there every week. We probably need some dads in there too so they understand dads can nurture and care and do this work also. Um, It's sitting at your tribe and saying, you know what, I'll take the kids in the backyard. I'll have the conversation. Give me that book. I want to talk to them. And because I don't want you to see yourself as a member of, of, of uh, Mission Hills Church. I don't want you to see yourself as someone who's on the fr- I want you to see yourself like an extended family. So what part of the family are you? Do you want to play the role of the wise sage, the patriarch, the matriarch, the grandparent? Do you want to play the role of the, the cousin? Do you want to play the role of everyone's aunt, everyone's uncle? However it is, everyone needs to see that their part of an extended family who lives on mission. And when we gather, all it is is just a family reunion.
because I believe it really does take a village. I have relied heavily on some of you to help me raise my kids. Could not do it without you. We don't live near kin, but we do have our faith family. We're lost without it. We're lost without it. So I believe that Jesus gave us this new operating system when he gave us the Great Commission. I want to close with this, and it's, um, I don't know how many of you read Seth Godin. Um, he's this, this kind of genius marketer who has, like, blog posts that are, like, 100 words or less, something I could never achieve. But um, he had this to say, and he simply said, why drafting works? Drafting as in, like, if you're into NASCAR or cycling, drafting, not, like, draftsmen. He says, the other day, a speedster on a bike passed me as I rode along a bike path. For the next 10 minutes, I rode right behind him, drafting his progress. Sure, there's an aerodynamic reason that this works. There's less wind resistance when you ride closely, but the real reason is mental, not based on physics. Drafting works because right in front of you is proof that you can go faster. Without knowing it, you do this at work every day. We set our pace based on what competitors or coworkers are doing. One secret to making more of an impact then is figuring out who you intend to follow. Don't pace yourself. Instead, find someone to unknowingly pace you. Sometimes we need a community to draft behind. Some of you feel like you're just stumbling in here because you're beat up parents, or maybe you're just arguing on the way over here and you just want to come and be a part of a community that just feels safe, it can be renewing, and we just need to lean on each other when we're down. Other times, we get to be strength when someone else is weak. Other times, we're fortunate to find a person to draft behind for a season. But ultimately, and I think this is when we're most alive, is when we're able to give the, use our invitation or our influence to invest into another life. You might not feel like you're ready to be some spiritual mentor today. Stick with us long enough. I hope that you can be. Some of you do have something to give away today whether it be formally or informally, whether it be intentionally or unintentionally, whether it be organically or deliberate. The point is to live out a faith in very tangible ways. And so I think apprenticing is a call for each of us to practice a living faith and begin to do that. The rhythms are simply one way that we get there. And so I want to invite Trevor and Shan, if you'd come up, and let's just pray about this, because I know uh, as I talk... I imagine some faces might come to mind. Let's just bow our hearts and our heads. God, I'm reminded of the people in preparing for this and delivering this that just made such a significant investment in me. I think about Larry, and I think about George. I think about Tim. I think about Uncle Gordy. I think about Bick Moore. Lord, they place such a deposit in my spiritual life, uh, my pastoral life. I think about my mom and dad, and I think about Mike and Dee, and I think about Bill and Connie, and I think about people who have just been married a whole lot longer and helped make sense out of the craziness that is marriage and parenting. Lord, I want to take those deposits and be faithful with them.
So will you open my eyes to the people that I might bless? To the people that I might walk into covenant with? To the people that I might encourage? I know that those deposits weren't supposed to come into me like I was some vessel for it, as much as I was supposed to be a vehicle for it. So flow through me. I'm also mindful of the the captive audience that are my children, that are the co-workers that are represented by the influence in this room, that are the neighbors, the people with you whom you have given us just unbridled, unmerited favor with, or the people that are paying attention to our lives. I pray that we would steward a faith that is living, that's active, that's authentic, that's real, that's not full of pretense. So, Lord, I would pray that we could just put feet to our faith and share it in real tangible ways. But you would show us who we can leverage our influence with and who we might seek to guide us further. So we just cry out to you. We just use this time to pray and petition you. We just want to center our lives before we just... We want to join with you in the heavenlies. Join with your chorus of angels singing out hallelujah. We want to boast on you. We want to come with our burdens tonight. We want to come with anticipation. We don't want to come because we've done this before. We want to come with an expectancy that you would live and move and have your will and way have your being. Guide us into your truth, we pray, as we sing together.
to teach my song to rise to you. When temptation comes my way, when I cannot stand off on you, oh Jesus, you're my hope and take our offering tonight I'd like to uh, mention something that Dave said uh, two weeks ago to remind everyone one of the traditions we want to establish here is called a good neighbor fund and out of our offerings one thing we want to do is take one dollar for each person that's here and give to that fund so that can be used to help the tribes and and to reach out with people also I just like everyone to bow with me for a word of prayer and just to think for a moment why we take this opportunity to take an offering. First and foremost is to realize that everything we have has been given to us by God. And this is just a way for us to show our appreciation and just to become a little bit more like Him. And so, our Father in Heaven, we thank You for this day. We thank You for Mission Hills the opportunity to serve you and we ask that you take these offerings tonight and bless them and use them for your will and your purpose in Jesus name we pray amen Blue. 
God of glory, Lord of love, every good thing comes from you. May we glorify your name in all we do. In all we remind you if you haven't had a chance to fill out this card tonight and could you fill this out before you leave that would uh, and then you can pass it to someone on the way back uh, ba on your way out the door a uh, couple of things again we're not meeting here next week we'll be meeting in tribes for the next two weeks uh, so find a tribe near you on the back of your program tonight there's some contact information if you want to get in touch with a tribe leader I would also just say, if you want to come forward at the end of the night, and there's a couple of us that would just love to pray with you, if you come with kind of a heavy heart, I hate when people come to church and remain anonymous and you carry this burden and leave with that burden. So we'd love to just pray with you if, if you would like that uh, at the end of tonight. And we're done kind of early. Uh, and so we had fun going out. Um, there's some great restaurants in the area. So we just decided that if you are up for a pint house run, um, there might be some of us gathering around there. So if you can, you know, it, we'll let you decide if you've lost your charm for the night uh, and, you know, you're living in overtime, as they say, you can go on home. But if you have some uh, bandwidth to come and hang, hang out at Pine House, uh, we're going to be there. So uh, you want to, you want to, we're good. Yeah. Okay. That's good. Um, uh, 
did I get everything? Was there, I can't even remember. I feel like I'm forgetting something. And I'm, I'm going to say that's it. And remember, that's it. All right. Hey, uh, thanks so much for coming. Thanks for uh, Shan and for Trevor for being here. I wanted to just say one thing. If you were one of the folks that went back in, in the, um, and worked with our kids during the message, we're going to have our, on, our, our uh, messages online because you're getting cheated out of these messages, maybe, maybe. But if, if you just stand up real quick, I, wanna, I want you guys to see Laurel, some of the adults that were working with you, Shannon and, and, and Lindsay, and uh, who else was back there? Uh, uh, trying to make these kids uh, understand and, and kind of have an awareness of God in their daily lives. So we're pretty stoked about that. You guys have a great week. We will see you very, very soon. Bye. The end. <laughs>